Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Teaching at Western Technical College, where we explore, share, and celebrate teaching and learning. We are your hosts, Maria Slusiric, Quality Assurance Mentor, and Larry Slusnico, Instructional Technologist. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Teaching at Western. We are back in the studio. Excited to have Amy Poteet here. She is a Com Skills instructor in the General Studies Division. And wow, I think we are going to have an awesome episode today. And Amy, just thank you so much for joining us. Oh, indeed. So let's kind of dive right in. I know time is of the essence, especially if you're listening right when this launches, it's the end of the fall term. But tell us a little bit about your amazing life journey that eventually led you to teaching at Western. Indeed. I um, I had a lot of opportunities. It is what it amounts to. Um, I was born in Virginia. I did my undergrad degree in Virginia, um, and I was an English major, and I switched over to comm studies, specifically speech, um, studying speech academically, and went to graduate school in Kentucky. A series of situations, I ended up working there full-time, and um, I loved teaching, and I always knew I would have a second career because the system that I was in, I knew that I would meet the retirement formula when I was still quite young because I, I think I was 22 when I started teaching. I just didn't know what that was going to be. And it turned out that what it was going to be was distance learning, which uh, I went to, like most faculty, hesitantly. And then I realized if I was going to do it, and I was in a system where we had to, um, that I had to understand it from the ground up. And so when I met that retirement formula and I had been teaching at the institution for 25 years, I was the Blackboard administrator at the time doing the training for faculty. And I decided I wanted to do that full time. So I left and I went to Wisconsin for the first time then on a TACT grant, did some leadership and distance learning at a couple of different colleges, and I just really missed teaching. And it, it was really odd for me to notice that I missed Wisconsin as well. I can't explain it, but I think it's like my spirit state. <laughs> and I just loved it so much when I, I was here the first time. So yeah, when I had an opportunity to teach in Wisconsin, I jumped on it and that's how I ended up here. Well, Amy, you do have an amazing journey for sure. Well, thank you. I definitely wanted to echo Maria's excitement in having you speak with us today. We're definitely looking forward to this. What about your teaching gives you the most satisfaction and what do you find the most challenging? Um, the absolute most satisfaction is being able to be in the lives of so many people at at such an exciting time for them. I do, in particular, with traditional age college students, I know there's, at that time, there's a lot of self-doubt. What do I want to be? Where do I want to go? I just love being in that position to 
help elevate them and convince them that, yes, you can be what you want to be. The challenge, kind of the opposite of that, is a trend you see of among so many, not just traditional age, but the population in general. Um, when things get rough, a lot of times people will back away from their own goals. For example, quit going to class, quit doing the work, whatever. And I often, when I, I notice a student doing that, I tell them my hardest semester socially when I was an undergrad ended up being my best semester academically because I couldn't control what was going wrong. And you're always going to have things going wrong. That's never going to stop. But I could control what I was doing in my classes. And I was doing that to invest in me and what I wanted. I think sometimes that that realization gets lost. And it's like, if you're going to check out emotionally from the situation, which sometimes you have to do, you need to invest all that energy on what you can control. And I think getting that message across is a, a big challenge. And honestly, frankly, it, it seems to be a challenge that grows each year. Absolutely. And maybe just a quick follow-up, Amy. You know, you touched on your very long career as an instructor, and I think that's pretty unique to other instructors at Western who may have been in the trades or the field and then came to teaching, you know, sometimes by accident, right? And where you really chose, you know, and dove into your calling and vocation as an instructor. Now, 25-plus years into it, you know, maybe it's a similar question, but it's been a challenging last couple of years. You it know, what been. really, what keeps you going? It has been. Um, well, for me, um, healthy or unhealthy, work has always been my hobby and what I love to do. And I realized back when I started getting training for teaching online and that sort of thing, um, as I would drift off to sleep at night, I would think about, hmm, wonder how you could do that online. <laughs> Those are weird dreams to have, but that, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. So I think that that is what keeps me going. I do know, and I'm kind of getting ahead of some of our questions, but um, I do know that with distance learning, when it first began, and I I missed the, the very first wave of training for distance learning in my institution because I had just had my daughter. You know, I wasn't really sleeping and that sort of thing. But I started in with the second wave. And you often heard it referred to as the wild, wild west. Anything would go. And you saw people who desperately needed to do it because it, it was dictating enrollment in our institutions. In the state of Kentucky, for example, if a student wants to take public speaking and they're in the community college system, there is no restriction of all of the colleges which one they can, can take it in. You know, if we weren't offering it at Ashland, they could enroll in it at Bluegrass. So we were losing the numbers. And because of that, you know, people were very stressed about what it means and what it looks like. And, you know, many people 
even challenged, is it real? Is it a good thing? Does it work? You know, and right before the pandemic, pre-pandemic, I think as higher ed in general, we had gotten to the point where we weren't having those discussions anymore because we were convinced not only can it be equally as good, it can be better if it's done well. But being done well is very challenging. But we had managed to know what that was and what that looked like. And that content had to be accessible and that you had to understand universal design and try to embed universal design practices into your courses. And you really did have to obey copyright law. So we had all of that down. You know, it looked like something and there was a way to do it well. The requirements of distance learning were clear that a class online is a consistently interactive course week to week, just like if you were coming into campus. Um, But I think that the pandemic blew that out of the water. And I think it turned what online is um, kind of on its head. Good will come from it ultimately, because even though you know, people were forced to do it during the pandemic, and many of them, you know, lovingly said, oh, I want to go, just go back to the classroom. I think most people saw how much you can do in that community to augment the class. And honestly, I don't remember, I, I can't imagine teaching without having that portal regardless of the format. Like right now, four of my classes are face-to-face and all of my classes have a blackboard shell. It's our community. All of our work is in there. Our schedule is in there. So yeah, I I mean, I, I think that that's kind of what the challenge is right now is just getting back to what does it mean? What does it look like to have good online content? And because augmenting classes is so important on so many levels, knowing those skill sets to enable that process to continue. For example, the last couple of weeks, I've had quite a few students who had to owl in (laughs) to the class. And because the content is there online, if a student can't be in the class or does it, or needs more of what we talked about in class, we have it in that format. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're kind of saying, if I'm hearing it right, it's almost like the pandemic created this wild, wild west part two. It did. <laughs> it absolutely did. In fact, distance learning by definition is literally, it's asynchronous. You know, it has activities where people can, um, they can collaborate, but designed in a way that it's on their own time. Obviously, you can optionally meet people face to face, but it's not, we're all going to meet online. That, you know, that's remote (laughs) learning and there's a place for it. And the pandemic opened that up. You know, it's, it's a very specific type of design and very engaging, very involved. And from a standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, it absolutely has to be a weekly pacing 
as though it were a face-to-face class. And I say that because I know initially when distance learning first began, there were people who would put things online and not log into their course for five weeks. Or I, I can remember back when I had begun, I had first begun distance learning teaching. And I had a student ask me a question in January and he said, well, you know, I already finished that other class (laughs) and he had logged in at the beginning of January and bam, 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 he was done. Not only is that not the intent of distance learning, that is not considered a college course that would be eligible for federal financial aid. So, there, there were struggles, and I think we know more now, and I think that the pandemic extended the validity mostly to people um, about the, the powerful nature of distance learning. So that was a good thing, and I don't know if you remember, but when we would talk about it, sometimes you, you would hear people almost say apologetically, you know, well, we had to move it online. No, it's an opportunity. You do, It's not a lesser than. It's the way that we're delivering it. Amy, you had brought up earlier the idea of universal design for learning and accessibility. Yes. And having that experience with distance education and online education, can you expand upon those concepts and how you incorporate them in your teaching and learning with your students? Oh, yes. That too is my hobby. Um, well, some interesting things that I think it's imp- it, it's powerful to know. Accommodation and accessibility are not the same thing. Accessibility is what we build to where literally accommodation, if I if someone needs one, they don't have to ask for it. They don't have to reveal a weakness because we have already built content that they can read, they can listen to, they can see. So many tools have evolved that do that for us now. And inside of Blackboard, we have that Blackboard ally. And oh my gosh, that is just an awesome tool. I do know a lot of people stress about, oh, what about the videos and that they have to be captioned? And really, I think the biggest stressor that we should be focusing on is making documents accessible. And the thing is, once you know how to do it, it's no more difficult doing it that way than not doing it that way. So I try to, you know, I try to build a course that's going to fit regardless of what a student's needs are. And if I am contacted by Access Services, FYI, you've got a student who needs this, that, and the other. It's like, done. <laughs> so that that is very good. And I can say that it's it's been a few years since I have had to be responsible for distance learning, for which I'm I'm glad. But uh, back when I was responsible for it, one of the things that I did see was the legal battles would come about when a student would say, hey, you've got all these videos. I have to have them captioned or your documents have to work with my screen reader. And a faculty member was left having to do that with a student who was currently in class. And that is not an overnight process. And it was that lag in um, that student's experience that led to legal problems. So that's why, you know, 
it, to this day, you you will hear people say, well, I have to do it if it's requested. No, you, you really need to build it from that standpoint. And once again, when you know how to do that, it's no more challenging than not doing it. As far as universal design is concerned, universal design is by its very nature, and I'm sure you all know this, tends to be highly accessible because it's typically all online stuff that you create for students. So students need to have multiple ways that they can work through content. And there are a lot of things that you can do for that, like a pace calendar, a checklist, allowing them to do what works for them first and work backwards. You know, not everybody is going to to do the same pace. Taking a topic and personalizing it into something that they feel really good about. You know, creating content that allows them to scaffold up and explore more if they're interested in it or to reach out for even remediation if they feel like they need more information. So, you know, it, it's a process. I remember on the TACT grant, our content, everything we built had to be accessible and it it had to have universal design. And we were required as part of that grant for every course we did to turn in a document where we showed you an example of each level of the multiple means Uh, one example in each course. So, you know, it's a process and it's a growing process. And I do not believe that the idea behind it is starting at day one. Every single assignment I have has, you know, 800 different ways to do it. No, it's a building process. And, um, you know, certainly it is possible that you have a student who wants to write papers, but for uh, multiple reasons, speaking what the paper is into something might be the way that they have to demonstrate that. And that's, you know, that's just the nature of universal design. And when I was working with the universal design in leading distance education at a college in Iowa, I, uh, one day, (laughs) yes, (laughs) one day, uh, picked up the phone and called CAST, and they're wonderful. I, you send them an email, they send you an answer, and their work is phenomenal. You know, I love their little, they have little charts that you can print that give you a hundred examples of how you can meet the multiple means. You know, it's a process, and in working with students, honestly, there is simply no way to say, I have everything that they could ever possibly need because we, you know, we differ as learners. And I think being open to saying, okay, let's talk. What, you know, what is it that isn't working for you here that we can explore? Not that access services isn't critical and fabulous, but it's wonderful when a student doesn't have to identify you know, I need this or I need that, but that we can provide that. And I'm really loving what you're saying about this, Amy, because as far as Western goes, we really are trying to build a culture where we're eliminating barriers for our students. And that looks 
like a lot of different ways and a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But what I'm hearing about universal design and accessibility is, of course, it's a process. But for me, I feel like it's a really big mindset that our instructors have to embody. Like when you're saying scaffolding and putting in the work and creating options and, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. There is. So I feel like it's such a valuable statement to say it doesn't happen overnight. It, it does. It is a process. And that I hope that our faculty feel, you know, from this podcast with you, you are now an <laughs> ally for universal design, but our faculty in academic excellence or our deans or, you know, I hope that faculty are hearing that we want to support the process and help cultivate a mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can, I can tell you this. Um, the person who wrote the book, uh, Teach Everyone, Reach Everyone, I think is the title, Tom Tobin. He is awesome. He is awesome. I met him when I was leading distance learning. I think it was at Southwest Tech at the time. Anyway, Tom actually works at University of Wisconsin-Madison. However, he doesn't, he lives in Pennsylvania. But when I was dealing with all of this, I would reach out to him and I, I would say, how, how do I do this? And he, he gave me some wonderful ideas. And when I was in Iowa, I created an accessibility plan that went something to the effect of starting today, everything we build is accessible. If you're building a new document, make it accessible. Then go back, look at your work. What do you need to tidy up? What documents, for example, are not working with the accessibility checkers and how do you fix them? We also need to delete. An awful lot of faculty use things for years and years that really, you know, for a lot of reasons, um, they're not accessible. They're not real. Uh, there are better ways to do it. For example, you know, I know that some faculty like to do a, a sheet, a check sheet where you open it, you fill in content. And really, if you embed that into some of the tools in Blackboard, like the testing tool does not have to be a test, but you can do short answers and, you know, students put the content right there inside of the LMS. So it totally eliminates having to make sure the document is accessible I know I've been in institutions before where the institution was paying a lot of money to store dated videos and things that were you know, no longer useful. So you do have to go back and say, is there a better way I can do this? Don't reinvent the wheel. There are so many resources on YouTube, for example, from the Mayo Clinic, from Scriber, from Purdue Owl. Um, if it's out there, link over to it. Reputable institutions do have their content closed captioned. And through the pandemic, interestingly enough, the closed caption is almost spot on on YouTube. I mean, I think if you're teaching if you're teaching stuff in the medical professions, for example, like nursing, you do have to make sure the medications, the doses, that sort of thing transcribed correctly. But for the most part, you, you get an awesome transcript that's automatically generated. And then the last thing 
is basically to hold your publisher accountable. Publishers know that content has to be accessible. And I doubt this is still the case, but at one time, I've seen publishers who had the accessible content, but the faculty members still had the dated content and didn't even know that, for example, the pow- that there were PowerPoint slides that were built to be accessible and you just had to change them out. So that was kind of our plan. And that was at Tom's suggestion, which really saved me <laughs> a lot of stress because you, you can't do it overnight. You have to have a starting point. You have to recognize this is where we all start. And I do know, you know, I've I've had people before just be so angry when they would say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's how we do it today. It is hard. It's harder. And I I tell them, and maybe they hate me, and that's okay. (laughs) Like I said, I'm glad I'm not in charge of that anymore. When I first started, literally in my first job, we hand cranked out what we printed for our syllabi. When I first started in the community college system in Kentucky, we had an office assistant who answered the phone, took messages for us, typed all of our syllabi and tests, printed them, dropped them off to our office. You know, that that is no more. That is not how we do it. You Those are responsibilities that you can and should handle yourself. And frankly, I can't imagine having to rely on somebody else when because I'm I'm so well I'm gonna change this a bit today and I want to be able to do it immediately myself. So it is the way that we teach today. It it is hard. There is a learning curve. But when the whole distance learning thing began, I knew I had a a lot of years left to work, at least according to the Social Security Administration. And I knew it wasn't going away. And certainly, as I said, in Kentucky, it was costing us enrollment. I just wanted to make sure I was doing it well. And I knew exactly how every tool worked. And I knew what students were seeing and how they were navigating it. And it has not always been a perfect journey by any stretch of the imagination. And at the beginning, simple tools like screencasting, would have been a gold mine back at that time, but they did they didn't exist. So yeah, we it's grown a lot, but you have to have a starting off point. And it's scary and if you plan to remain, it's it's how you invest in in you. Like I said, you get stressed out, you don't hide you dig in. This is just wonderful information, Amy. I think this is so timely for our faculty to hear and even more meaningful hearing it from a fellow colleague and faculty member too. And I'm thinking it's especially timely because of all of the work we're doing with our seven-week transition as we're rethinking about our courses and thinking about what this means for students. And, you know, there's a lot of variables up in the air. And I think our faculty are wondering how are we going to make this work? And I know that we've been pushing a lot of the quality matters standards as kind of our guiding light and framework for going through this course design. And I know that you yourself have gone through quite a number of trainings, but where do you see kind of quality matters going with your universal design accessibility? Can you just speak to the value of that specific 
framework to kind of help faculty moving forward. Sure. And and I'm going back in history again. Um, online coursework leaves the proverbial permanent record of what you did and what you didn't do. In Wisconsin in particular, we have shared curriculum across the state. And if I'm teaching a class that these are the outcomes I need to address, I want I, I need to see that in the course that you're teaching. Where did you address it? How did you address it? You know, what did you do with that information? And that's the idea behind Quality Matters. I should also say the Blackboard Exemplary Course Program is based similarly. It, it does not, um, it's not as specific as Quality Matters, but the Blackboard Exemplary Course Program also says you base content around outcomes. You know, what is it that you're trying to achieve? And I, I think being able to look at that and see that and know that you're doing it and have the confidence to say, you know, here's what I'm covering. And I know that when someone first comes to teaching who has not been trained to be a teacher, and I understand that completely, is we want to take the book and go, okay, here's what I need to cover, you know, the chapters in the book. Well, no, what you need to cover is the outcome. So in some cases, and I know this has over the years kind of freaked my students out, we're not necessarily going to cover them in the order that they're in your book. You know, some, some publishers will even say, tell us how you want it put together and, and we'll do that. And of course, we use OER at Western. So you know, I link out to the chapters, but they are not chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It's if we're studying uh, being ethical as a speaker, we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff about giving credit to your sources and how to find reliable sources. And that may be a chapter in a book. It's going to be links out to videos. It's going to be links out to resources. And I always tell students, as far as information is concerned, as an educated person, what you're learning to do is take responsibility to figure out how to do certain things. For example, if you ask me right now, I want you to document a podcast in MLA style. I, I can't tell you how to do that off the top of my head. I don't need to know how to do that. Universal Design says... If there's a tool for it, use it. That's why it's there. You know, you can go to somewhere like Scribber or to um, Purdue Online um, Writing Lab and figure out, I need to know how to document a podcast. And bam, it's right there. So I, I know where to look. I know what I'm looking for. I know what the standard is. And that's what an educated person does. They know where to look. They take the responsibility to figure it out. And, you know, I, I learned that when I was 15 years old, when I was in high school from my English teacher. So I think it's powerful information for any of us to know. I don't know how to do it and that's okay, but I know how to find where to do it. And I find that amazing, Amy, because when I went through professional school and we were just bombarded with tons and tons and tons of information. And one wise faculty member 
you know, he probably saw my consternation at trying to memorize all this information. And, and he looked over at me and he had this kind of gravelly voice. And he said, there's no way you're going to know all this, but at least you're going to know where to look. Exactly. Exactly. I can remember when I first went off to college, my dad said, what you're learning is you're learning how to learn. He said, otherwise, they could put everything in a big jump book and you could wear it on a chain around your neck. He said, that, that's not what it's about. And that's true. It's not. It's knowing how to find it and that you're not going to know everything. But there is value in knowing what you need to know. That's absolutely true. And Larry, if we could just get that sound bite on a loop, that would be just the best Christmas present, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. But it's so true. And I it think is. that's that's what's so fun, at least for me and maybe for you know our guests here today, that that's what's so fun about teaching is figuring out how every single student's brain and heart really work mm-hmm. to get them to enjoying the learning process. That's right. And it's so hard to do. So. It is. And I think one of the, the missing elements, through certainly no fault of the learner, but to understand that it really isn't the teacher's responsibility to know every single thing and tell you what it is. It's the teacher's responsibility to say, here's what it is. Here are the resources that enhance it. Here's how you apply it and work with students to, to know how to do that. You know, it, it's challenging, but the, the learner role frankly, should be more active even than the teacher role. But you know, that's another topic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast episode part two. <laughs> yeah, I think in imparting, I think teachers can feel real success if they've imparted in their students a love for learning. Exactly. What, whatever their passion is. I mean, it, it could be across the board, but I don't know how many people I've talked to that said, if this person really likes tennis, work around tennis, get them to read uh, tennis books, you know, watch tennis, that thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody has passion, a passion or passions. And if you can use that as the catalyst to get them in a a love for learning and the idea of, you know, critically looking at things, being open to learning new things, I I think that is so much, so important for, for any, any individual. Uh, the best teacher that I ever had in my whole life was my high school English teacher. And I loved and respected her, honestly, to the same level of my own parents. In fact, I always thought if I had a second daughter, I would even name her after her. She unfortunately died quite young. Uh, she was an African-American woman who, and by the way, I went to Appalachia High School. I grew up in the coal fields of Appalachia. Everybody's family worked in the coal mines or on the railroad. She had actually taught at one of the segregated schools. She came to the high school probably, she probably started there in the late 60s, and she was amazing. She did not tolerate excuses for not reading what you were supposed to read, not learning what you were supposed to learn. You know, she she just wouldn't hear it. And so I think, you know, I liked her so much and I always wanted to be prepared well for class. 
I knew when I was reading something, if I found a word I didn't know what it meant, I had to look it up because I knew she would ask. And if you didn't know it, you got to go home and write the definition 50 times the night before. Uh, she was amazing, and I loved her. She was the English teacher, but we learned literature, we learned grammar, we learned mechanics, we learned commas. Commas never stumped me after having had her class. We had to learn to sing the Star Spangled Banner because she thought everybody needed to know how to do that. We had to diagram the Star Spangled Banner and I loved diagramming. I still love diagramming and I still sometimes do it in my head. <laughs> but uh, she also, we did Women's History. We did Black History Month literature. She, she was amazing. And she, you know, I came across a high school paper that I had written back in, gosh, years ago. And I think I got a B minus on it. And I was like, wow, this is a good paper. <laughs> she was, she was very strict. I, in high school, our junior year, our first term paper had to be 25 typewritten pages. And then when I was a senior, we had to do two, and they were equally huge. When I got to college in English, 101 said, you've got to do a five-page term paper. I was like, whoa, I can crank that out tonight. So, yeah, she had very high standards, and she believed from the bottom of her heart that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you came from, regardless of any odds that were against you, you were able to know how to do how to do your language well. You know, she held us to very high standards and I have so much gratitude to her in my life. And all of my friends that I'm connected to on Facebook who also were her students have the very same feeling. She was phenomenal. She really was. That's such a cool story and a really big testament to having high expectations, but doing it out of a mutual respect and rapport and relationship between the student and the instructor. And I can see some instructors maybe saying, well, wow, she was really strict and she really did all of these things. But really, I can only imagine the community she built in her classroom to allow you to respect her to the degree that you did. And I think with our students, we can have incredibly high expectations for them, but through universal design and scaffolded instruction and a community of support, they're able to do it without having to feel like they're jumping off a cliff, you know? Yeah. So I think that's really important. Well, and I also, I know it's kind of an anomaly to mention, but I, I was speaking with a colleague one time about her and my colleague said, well, you know, for as much as you loved her, there were probably students who said, oh my gosh, I hate her. And, you know, I, to, to me, the high standard was a challenge and I didn't always get there, but by gollies, I knew it was supposed to be, I was supposed to do it well. When we would read our literature, the books that we had to read. Oh my gosh, I just absolutely absorbed them. And, you know, when I would hear my friends say, I'm not reading that. I mean, yeah, I know. It's like, ah, I can't wait to get home and read it. So 
Yeah, because I knew that that when we were tested over it, that there would be the types of questions that we had to be able to know that that would be you could only answer them if you read them. For example, when we read The Good Earth, when his wife died, there was a question, what what did he most regret about losing his wife and it it was one little line and he had she had kept a couple of pearls when times were good and he made her give those to him so when times were hard so he could sell them and and that was what he most regretted was taking those pearls and it you know if you didn't read that story well you didn't have that information so it's amazing what you remember it truly it is. It I mean, is. it's when you think back on your education and some of the things that that surface to the top that many people would feel would be almost insignificant, but it registered with you and it's yeah. it stays with you. And I it definitely does. I definitely relate to your idea of expectation and respect. I think both of those are so important in education. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we we lose that. You know, we we, we need to have students with certain expectations, reasonable mm-hmm. expectations, and at the same time, both the students and the instructor deserve respect, mutual respect. Exactly. O- only through that are you able to build that learning community that you need to impart the learning, impart the interaction that you're hoping mm-hmm. that it's a, a true, transparent interaction. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I will mention, since we've talked about, you know, things like online and quality matters and that sort of thing. Sometimes with online, especially early on, you would have situations where the whole system went offline. You know, it was so frustrating and students would send you emails and blah, blah, blah. And there were people behind the background working 24-7 to get it back online. And I, as the instructor, would have to figure out, you know, the work around Sometimes you would get that very angry on discussion boards. Well, I think we should get extra credit because of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I, I'm i the one who's helping us navigate this. I didn't cause it. Nobody caused it. it. It's the nature of the tools. There are people working 24-7 to write this. And, you know, this is, is just how we do things. So, no, no extra credit for figuring out a workaround. I don't know. Some I think we all have experienced this. An a learner who starts angry, you know, and like I said, one one of the things that was always different in my courses, I did not start with chapter one. I very clearly said what where they needed to read, and you know, it, it was a learning curve. And I'm I'm the one who's managing the class, and I'm telling you what you need to do. I am not the enemy, you know? So, but yeah, it, that, that angry approach. And I do see that. And honestly, fairly, I understand it because I know that, you know, students have sometimes had very punitive instructors who were not willing to be open to looking at things differently or understanding how things might come across better. And, and I'm not going to say I'm perfect at that, you know, but I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm aware of, you know, what needs to be communicated in those circumstances. 
That's great. And maybe in closing, because a lot of amazing ideas have been talked about, but if there are just one or two main takeaways that you've learned through your quality matters training or expertise in distance and online learning, what are some big takeaways that you'd like to share with our faculty? The content that we put online is real. It is not lesser than. It does not replace the instructor. It can't. It's not possible. There's not a way to build a course and bam, it's done forever. They're not done. They're living live communities, regardless of of the way that they're being delivered. I I know there's a a learning curve, a perspective, and it, it takes a while to get there, but they can be excellent. And that depends on the instructor going, how would I want this to be? What would this look like for me? How can how can I do this and to try things? And I think if there were an important lesson, I would tell anyone who's relatively new to distance learning, you're not going to replicate the classroom exactly. It's not the same thing. And it's not a great goal. There needs to be a different way that you approach it with videos, for example. Uh, so much more powerful to do snippets, to do small videos. If you're covering outlining in class, here's a little video about what goes in the introduction. You know, so you can watch it, you can speed through it. I even show my students how to speed up a five-minute video because I know I've got that Southern thing and I'm kind of, it's slower than what it has to be. So I have students speed up the content, but here's what goes in the introduction. Here's a five-minute video on the speech body, a five-minute video on the conclusion. Here's a two-minute video about how to get your documentation spaced correctly. So, you know, those resources are there and you build them one day at a time. If a student isn't there and they can't out in, they still have access to what you covered and they need to make use of that. And Amy, I know for all of our instructors, we could easily go on and on because our instructors have such a wealth of experience and stories to tell. And in the several instructors that we've talked to already, that that's definitely the case. There, there could be part two, three, who knows how many parts. <laughs> so I, I know as Maria and I are thrilled that you were able to join us and share at least the beginning of some of the stories and Perhaps we can invite you back in the future and you'll, you'll have more and more to share because I could see the stories continuing <laughs> to flow as, as we say something new, another story comes forward. Yes. And we, we don't we don't want to drain you of stories, but we definitely want to thank you so much for joining us for this oh, podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it so much. You know, I I love what we do. I know that it's a challenge and I know that it's a learning curve and I feel very fortunate to have been in a system when distance learning first began that had wonderful training opportunities. I just am very grateful for being able to feel comfortable in that arena. So, but thank you for inviting me. I I feel um, honored, humbled to have been asked to be part of it. 
Well, this is a very prestigious podcast. I don't know if you know, but we are on all of the major platforms. We are on Spotify. We're on Anchor FM. We are wherever your podcasts are not really sold. There's no (laughs) no financial anything attached to this. But Amy, again, just want to echo Larry's sentiments. We so appreciate you. And we also appreciate all of our listeners that have joined us (laughs) in this episode. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you again for asking me. I enjoyed it so much. You're welcome. Take care, and we'll see you all in the next one. Indeed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.